0: all right welcome everybody to the social brain this is episode 18 and today we're talking about who we are we're talking about (laughs) self the the self in the brain the neuroscience of yourself and uh to to discuss this with me is my co-host taylor guthrie an expert on the neuroscience of self (laughs) uh so i'll I'll hand it off to him to get started
1: yeah so You know, every single one of us has this desire to be the best version of ourselves, right? And we we kind of thrive in these relationships where the other person allows us to really be our authentic self. But like, what does that even mean, right? Uh, And reflect for a minute, really, on kind of how cool it is that we can even ask that question. We can contemplate who we are. Because as humans, we have this incredibly rich sense of self, right? We can reflect and we can report on our feelings and on our emotions, and we can distinguish that those feelings and emotions belong to us, that they're separate from the people, from the other living things around us, right? Uh, We can also monitor our behavior in real time, and we can make sure that things that we're saying, things that we're doing are in accordance with social rules, with social conventions to avoid embarrassment, to avoid ostracism, right? Right? But I think most importantly is that we as humans can create these incredibly complex, multifaceted identities, right? These things that define where it is that we fit into kind of the social fabric that w- we're a part of. And they give us like drives and motivations. They allow us to accomplish things and to pursue things that are like really long term, right? And something that I think is, is really cool is that most of these behaviors are very uniquely human. Right. And so that's that's pretty good evidence evidence that what we're working with are pretty advanced, evolved neural circuits that allow us to do these things. Right. And so today we're going to kind of start by thinking about why it is that a self probably emerged in the first place. Like, why do we need a self as a species? Um, And then we'll get into a lot of the the really cool neuroscience around this, like how we started to to really pick apart, like what it is about the brain that's allowing us to produce this sense of self, how it gives us this feeling that we are this agent out in the world. Um, And then kind of at the end, we'll explore these identity processes, like how identity forms through adolescence. Um, and how we can really capitalize on a lot of these identity principles to make really kind of lasting and meaningful change in our lives. These are things that we've mentioned a lot on this podcast, uh, but I think this has been a long time coming. Like this is this is my cup of tea. Uh, <laughs> this is what I study, so I'm a little biased, but I I, I love thinking about this kind of stuff. Uh, and there's some some really cool stuff that we've already figured out, and some really interesting kind of directions that this is going in the future. So
0: we're going to be really really selfish today. <laughs> so, should we explore that first question that you mentioned yep. like why do we need a self? What's maybe the evolutionary argument for that?
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's important to notice that we I don't think are kind of alone in the fact that like we have a sense of self, right? Um, I think phenomenologically, like the actual experience of being an agent in the world is something that most living things have, I think, even down to maybe like the single cells, like they they know that that they're uh, that they need food, that they need to maintain some type of nutrient balance and things like that. And there's even evidence that they have like memory, like bacterial cells have memory and things like that. Uh, but I think what's uniquely human is this kind of narrative sense of self that we have, right, of of really kind of defining kind of this story of of who we are and where we're going and how we fit into uh, the family that we're a part of or the the work that we do or anything like that. It's kind of how we fit into the social fabric. It's a very social oriented thing.
0: That definitely makes sense. And we've talked about, I was just going to kind of piggyback on your point about kind of the self as, as an object, as an individual organism Mm -hmm. in the world, rather than this more psychological narrative based self that we're going to be really focusing on, uh, in this episode. But we have, we talked in the past about interoception and about how the the body influences the brain and emotions. And I would think that would be most relevant to kind of the, uh, the, the more self as, as object. And maybe I'm not using that term uh, quite right, but, um, but I'm sure it it also plays into our narrative sense of self by influencing our emotions and our our story of our life. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to kind of mention that we're, we're going to be talking a lot about the prefrontal cortex and especially Mm -hmm. the medial prefrontal cortex. Um, but anyone out there who's like a fan of the insula and interoception don't, uh, don't be disappointed because we do have an episode yeah. on that that you can check out. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: yeah and it's it is it, it's an important part of, of who we are because we we do have these feelings, we have this this body that we're in, we have this experience of moving through the world. But I think that the the narrative sense of self is really what gives us a lot of our drive, a lot of our motivation and purpose in life, right? It's how we really define where it is we came from and why that's important to move us forward in life, right? And and we, I mean, we've talked about this a lot on this show is that we have incredibly long-term goals as humans, right? We can we can go to work every day and, and grind and do things to try to achieve something that we're not gonna see for, for years, right? I have a publication I need to write. I'm probably not gonna publish for like three years, right? But I, I go to work every day and I, I do a little bit of work, right? Um, but something that that really kind of sticks out to me that was really interesting when you think about kind of the formation of like, why did this narrative sense of self kind of emerge in the first place? Um, I think that it's it's very socially oriented, right? Because it, it is kind of defining like how we fit into this societal structure that we're a part of. And we are this incredibly kind of complex uh, societal creature, right? Uh, and there's this this really interesting work that looked at so i'm going to use this kind of metaphor right of looking at single cells and if you go all the way back like evolutionary history of single cells of when it was that they made that transition into multicellular organisms right because a multicellular organism is essentially like a society of living things that all have different jobs and different responsibilities like we're made of trillions of cells that are all different We have muscle cells and bone cells and nerve cells right that are all kind of cooperating together like a society would. But when you look very early on when they were making that transition into multicellular life, there's this thing called exportation of function right so there was a point where there was just colonies of cells and all of the cells were the same they all did the same thing right? They all had the same machinery to to eat food and to digest food, to protect themselves. But when they got together in a colony, this really interesting thing happened where the cells on the outside lost their ability to digest food and instead put all of their energy into creating a defensive perimeter around the colony. And the cells on the inside lost all ability to defend, but then had this enormous ability to digest food and then it created this ability, like, okay, we'll digest food, and then we'll send that food out to the perimeters to these people that are protect, or these cells that are protecting, right? I I see this kind of similar similarity with like how narrative self kind of evolved in a societal aspect, right? As our groups became more complex, as they became kind of complex societies, we had this need to export function, right? We're not all just hunters and gatherers anymore. Now that the society is more complex, you need to do that job and you need to do that job and we need to work together and you need to lose the ability to go out and pick the right berries because you need to make horseshoes or you need to build houses, right? Um, And it gave us this this sense of of purpose of like where it is that I fit within this kind of social fabric that I'm a part of, right?
0: That definitely makes sense. It reminds me of the saying in economics that... uh, no single person knows how to produce a pencil (laughs) and it's this idea that you know you might know a lot about the the chemistry of graphite or the material properties of the wood that's used in these pencils or you know but i mean it might be an over exaggeration there might be some genius out there who knows how all (laughs) these things come together how the metal for the thing that holds the eraser on gets produced and the eraser itself and how that all comes together and everything but it's it's just basically pointing to this idea of specialization that we live in such a complex society now that there can be you know you could be devote your entire life to studying the properties of erasers and how to make those more (laughs) effective and and cheaper or however that goes but anyway yeah that was a little bit of a digression
1: no, it's. I think it's perfect because it also highlights where these things go wrong, right? Think about like some of the the symptomology that comes when you don't have a sense of purpose, when you can't find where it is that you fit into society. I mean, this is we live in an age of identity crisis, right? There's like so many options. There's also so many jobs that are disappearing that that existed ten years ago that don't exist anymore. We're like in this really fast changing society uh and what we'll kind of talk about kind of near the end too when we get into more of the identity stuff is that like it it used to be that we knew what we were doing at like 20 like people were starting families they had a career that they were going to work for the rest of their lives and now it's like not until like 30s that people are actually like starting careers if they are uh things like that and so i think that this is a really important thing to, to really kind of capitalize on is that if you can realize that your sense of self is very intimately tied to how it is that you fit into the world, uh, then you realize that some of the symptoms that you get from like, Oh God, what, what am I doing with my life? Like uh, that's, that's normal because you're trying to find some sense of long-term purpose. Right.
0: Totally. Yeah. And <clears throat> um, I guess a lot of that has to do with, with building your sense of self, but also understanding what your, maybe your natural talents and your natural capabilities are, and then, and then finding a way to express that in the the context of this complex social, uh, or this complex society. Um, but anyway, I guess we're, we're getting a little bit off of, uh, our, (laughs) our focus of the, the neuroscience, but, um, uh, yeah, so, so, okay. So what is, what are we, what exactly? We've, we've mentioned that this is this narrative structure about who we are, um, but like, what is the self and, and what is it, how yeah. is it represented in the brain? And um, what do we know about that?
1: So I think the really important part to start is uh, is looking at kind of how we've looked at this over the last couple hundred years, and then how cognitive psychology kind of came in Uh, And realize that there's something kind of special, right? So back in the back in the 70s, we didn't have brain scanners, right? We weren't able to look into someone's brain and say like, oh, where is your self? Like, is there a self, right? Uh, We did in the memory world. So cognitive psychologists were studying things like memory and attention and things like that. Uh, And this really interesting finding came out of the memory world, where Uh, there were people that were studying what's called depth of processing, right? So if I were to to show you some word or a list of words and say, I want you to remember these words, uh, there's a couple different kind of manipulations I can use. I can say, are all of the words capital letters, right? And that's like your task. And you go through and you just say yes or no, are these capital letters or not? You don't have very good memory at the end, if if that's kind of what you're doing. Uh, If instead you say, does this word rhyme with something else? and you kind of engage more of a meaningful process, you start to develop more memory. And then if you get into like, what does this word mean? Is it similar or different to other words, right? You start to see that like the deeper in the processing you get, the higher the memory gets. But they found, they added this this other condition where they said, I want you to make this word self-relevant. So take that word and put it into some type of a sentence that's about you. And all of a sudden the memory just like shot up through the roof, right? We have really, really good memory for things that become self-relevant. And so it started this debate. It was like, okay, is the self this like special thing in the brain or is it just this, every piece of information is processed the same way but it's just this higher level of processing, right? Um, The problem at the time is that you couldn't really figure that out without looking into someone's brain. And both theories had the same behavioral prediction. They both resulted in higher memory, right? And so, so it wasn't until the 90s that
0: we could figure that out. So, and so just to clarify that, the first yeah. theory was that the self is, it's something special in in the brain, in the mind. Uh, and, and therefore it has this kind of like, I don't know, almost magical property of being <laughs> able to uh, consult or, um, allows to recall information from memory more easily. And then the second theory was that, no, it's not this special thing. It's just that you have a, a lot more information, a lot more context about yourself and your own like history. Um, so therefore you're going to be when, like you were talking about with the depth of processing, you're going to be processing any information about yourself more deeply because you've got this whole like framework and context about yourself. Um, And then so therefore, you'll recall the information more easily. And so they both have the same behavioral prediction. But then you're saying they could differentiate that on the basis of the the uh, neuroscience.
1: And that was that was the thing. It was like because if the self is something special, if it's a special cognitive structure, then you should see a different brain region come online for self stuff that's not online for any of the other word stuff. Right. So, if it was depth of processing, then you would see the same brain regions processing everything but maybe just like different activity or whatever. Um, And so, we have, it wasn't until the 90s that MRI became a thing. Um, We had EEG, but EEG even didn't have like, we didn't have the computers to really make sense of a lot of it either, right? Um, And so, it's only been within the last 20 years that we've started to figure out that like, wow, our brain is doing something really kind of cool and special. Uh, and this started with like so Bill Kelly uh, at Dartmouth did some of these studies where he was he was kind of looking at that that memory problem of like, OK, is there something special going on here? And what he found was that there was this region in the medial prefrontal cortex. Uh, It's kind of on the ventral side of a thing. So down uh kind of near the bottom, Uh like where the brain fall-
0: kind of kind of curls over in the front, right? Mm -hmm. So you're gonna be a
1: little bit above that, kind of in the midline. A little bit above, okay. Yep, and that region lights up really, really robustly for things that are self-relevant and doesn't light up for any of the other semantic stuff. So it's not that it's being processed the same way as everything else. It's that as soon as we realize that something's self-relevant, this like selfie region turns on that's like hey this is important to me right like pay attention uh which is is really and like if you're a student that's listening to this podcast right now i want you to really take this in because if you want to learn information if you want to actually retain not just regurgitate something onto a test if you actually want to retain information you need to find out how to make that relevant to you, to your goals, to your purpose, to whatever it is that you're doing in life, uh, because we're seeing that there's this mechanism that's like, hey, this is important to my long-term goals. Let's let's bring it in. Let's attach it to our self-concept in some way, and like make our
0: self-concept more elaborate. And there's like empirical data, right, showing that uh, when students do that, as opposed to just um, you know just. Referencing other people, or or kind of a not referencing people at all, that the yeah. self-referencing um, condition, they, they tend to remember things much better than yep. than the other conditions.
1: And this is something. So this has really kind of uh, changed the way that I teach. So whenever I teach a class, so if you if you watch any of my lectures on my YouTube channel, you'll notice that the very first lecture of an entire course that first like 10 minutes, I put more time into that first 10 minutes than I put into like the next five lectures combined, right? Uh, and it's because I, I want to really get across like why it is that this information is meaningful, right? Like you you just like start a class. I mean, any of you can kind of remember any class, they just kind of jump in, right? They're like, all right, this is 1954 when uh and, if you can start instead by really tying it, like, look, let's take all of this information that you're about to learn and let's really kind of conceptualize it. Let's talk about why it's important and how it's connected to you and to your purpose and why you're taking this class and what you're doing. Then it really sets the stage for everything that comes after to really kind of fit into that.
0: That's so cool. Um, that and your, uh, your expression and, and, uh, your like enunciation in your videos, if people want to watch good, uh, neuroscience lectures, uh, from like a university level, check out Taylor's because, uh, because of that, that reason. And that's something that we've tried to incorporate into this show as well Is like, yeah. how is this relevant for your life? Because I mean, ultimately, you know, we, we want to help people out with this information, but we also want you to remember it and to be able to, to have like a deeper understanding of it. But anyway, kind of I like that oh, one on track there.
1: <laughs> no, no. So I think it's, uh, so where we're at that now is that, okay, so we found out that there's this special structure in the brain, right? And that led to a series of, of researchers that really started to dig in and say like, okay, what is it about the self? And what you'll notice is that most of the people studying it are social neuroscientists. Uh, and it's, it's kind of interesting, like studying the self, but you're a social, uh, and it's because the, so- the self is incredibly social right? Like we have this sense of self because we're a part of all of these intricate groups, right? We have these families that we have to relate to. We have friendships that we have to have some type of identity in. Uh, We have work and purpose and all of these things that all kind of wrap up into this idea of the self. And so what's really interesting is a lot of the work has started to try to differentiate like, okay, what's going on in the brain when I'm thinking about the self versus when I'm thinking about other people? Uh, And, there's some really interesting work. Uh, so Andrew and I were talking a little bit about this before the show started, but, uh, there tends to be when you look at, at other people. So if I'm thinking about Andrew, if I'm thinking about one of the listeners or something like that, uh, I tend to use a region that's more dorsal on the medial prefrontal cortex. So higher to the, to the top, higher to the top, closer to the top. (laughs) Uh, And when I'm thinking about myself, I use this this region that's more ventral. Uh, But they started to do this interesting thing where they kind of manipulated who the other person was, right? Is the other person I'm thinking about close to me? Are they a good friend of mine? Or are they similar to me in terms of kind of uh, politics and, and interests and things like that? And the more that they manipulated that other to be like me, the more the activity started to drift down into the self region right? uh, And it was this really interesting, it kind of prompted these theories about, uh, there's this simulation theory that like me understanding other people when they're close to me, I can, because you have to think about social cognition as a predictive thing, right? So I'm trying to predict what the other people around me are going to do, right? How they're going to react to me, how they're going to kind of uh, communicate with me and all of these things. Uh, and If I don't know you, then I'm probably going to use some type of stereotype, some type of heuristic, right? You fit into that group. And so what could be happening is that the DMPFC could be kind of keeping these stereotypes online of like, I'm using this kind of this heuristic, this shortcut to predict you, to predict your behavior, to kind of figure out where you fit in relation to me. But as you start to get closer to me, as you start to become more similar to me, I can use myself as a template for predicting you, right? Because you're like me, you act like me, you do similar things that I do, and so you're going to start drifting down into this region that probably keeps some type of template of of me, of my preferences, of the things I like to do.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I hadn't thought of this till now, but is it does does the same effect come up when? Um if you know somebody really well, but you don't consider yourself very similar to that person, do you you still see that same effect?
1: Yeah, and there's, it's interesting because they have tried to to kind of dig into that. I don't know if there's like enough work that's been done in that regards, Um, but it does seem to be that like intimacy is driving a lot of it. So the the stronger the bond, the closer you are, uh, they, they talk about it more as like kinship, right? Mm. It's It could essentially be this kind of in-group, out-group type distinction of like, okay, you're part of my group, so I'm going to kind of... Uh, gotcha. So this is this is kind of hot off the press. I haven't... Uh, so it's something that I'm, I'm working on. I just had some significant results in something that I'm working on. Uh, but we do tend to see that uh, that the more kind of, the more I'm a friend with you, the closer I am in friendship to you, the more distinct my representation of you is. So I start to to form more of a kind of actual representation of who you are and, and what you're going to do, as opposed to having just kind of this
0: stereotypical shortcut. That is so cool. <clears throat> um, okay, so uh, so we're talking about how, our representations of people change as we, we get to know them better or, or maybe that as they become part of our in-group. Um, so what, what does that say about this VMPFC region? What is it doing? Like, Why is it, it having that, why are we seeing that pathway, that effect occur?
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, that is an open question. That is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about a lot of the time, uh, because it could be that there's like this, a self region in the brain, uh, but we really have to think about like what that region of the brain is actually doing, what it's computing, right? Um, And you tend to see when you venture out of the social neuroscience world, and you start looking at Other types of cognitive neuroscientists and things that we've talked a lot about on this show, people that study decision making, people that study memory, people that study attention, all of these different things, you tend to see this self-region pop up in a lot of them, right? So one of the big ones is is value. So, um, And this is something I think we've mentioned on the show before, but the VMPFC, this region that typically is involved in self, uh, also pops up when you're making decisions. Uh, And usually kind of simple decisions, like, should I choose this or should I choose that? And what they think is happening is that the VMPFC is calculating the value of those different decisions, right? And, like, when you start to think of, like, okay, we need to start tying a ribbon around this. Like, we need to see, like, okay, what is it about value and about the self that are somehow connected, right? My, uh, my mentor also has uh, a paper about the connections that this region has to reward centers, to, to kind of ventral tegmental area. Uh, and so you have to think that like the closer something is to, to me, to to my sense of self, the more valuable it's going to become, right? Because it's tied to my goals. It's tied to my pursuit. It's tied to my preferences, like who I am. And so it could be that this region is kind of keeping some type of memory of, like all of my my past preferences all of the things that that have been good or have been bad in the past uh, and is is able to like yes it pops up for self but it we can use that sense of self to make decisions right
0: yeah yeah that's really interesting because uh you know we've we've talked a little bit we've mentioned uh the work of um Kent Barrage and and Morton Kringelbach on pleasure and one of the uh, findings, one of the, the hedonic hotspots, one of these areas that you can stimulate and, and at least in animal models reliably get um, what appears to be a, a hedonic response, like these animals are experiencing pleasure when these these spots are stimulated. And one of them is in the orbital frontal cortex. And this is really close to this VMPFC region we're talking about. And so I think that that pleasure and value probably have this really Really, a tight correlation between them as well.
1: And it, I mean, when you look at the psychology literature, we have an incredible positivity bias when we're considering ourselves, right? We we, we tend to see ourselves, uh, and this is, I mean, kind of the the normative <laughs> self, not necessarily thinking about like mythology. But uh, if you go if you go out on the street and you ask. 100 people who's above average intelligence, you're probably going to get like 95% of them are going <laughs> to say that they are, right? That's statistically impossible. Uh, but it's because we have these these kind of these positive views about ourselves. And it's what allows us to kind of maintain drive and maintain motivation and purpose. And it's the kind of things that that fall away in pathology. Right, we we tend to to lose that sense of positivity uh, when we get depressed, when we get anxious, and things like that. Um, but that could very much be tied to the fact that this like self region is very connected to all of these kind of reward circuitry things, these positivity, hedonic pleasure things, right?
0: And yeah, and the the video or our last episode where we talked about the the hope circuit, which is um, really best characterized in in rats but uh, there's good reason to think that it, it does exist in humans um, and it's it is from the vmPFC to the uh, dorsal raphe nuclei and when that pathway is activated in the context of stress it kind of immunizes us against this um, effect of learned helplessness in other words we get a greater sense of control over adverse circumstances and perhaps this has to do with the VMPFC being so important for our sense of self and efficacy, maybe.
1: Yeah, and I mean, we're starting to paint this picture of how powerful identity can be, right? Our, Our sense of self that if we can truly kind of develop a strong sense of, of who we are and where we've been and where we're going, right. And have this kind of this purpose and this drive towards that, 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 that region that tends to be involved in selfhood is also involved in regulating hopelessness, right. Of regulating, like, look, no, I do have purpose. I do have drive, right. I, I'm not helpless and we need to, we need to maintain the, the, <laughs> the type of chemicals that are going to get me out of bed and, and keep me moving, right? Uh, the other thing that's really interesting, and this harkens back to one of the very first videos that, that Andrew and I did, uh, was that you tend to see this region pop up in, in like the goal literature and like cognitive control. So if I'm thinking about a, accomplishing goals, right, what we tend to see is that when we're creating goals, we tend to see these lateral regions of the frontal cortex. So regions on the outside of the the prefrontal cortex, they're very effortful, right? When I'm like putting together a plan, like it, it's like, oh, I need to like think about this and I need to think about this, right? You're putting all of this effort in. Uh, But what a lot of the goal literature tends to, to look at is that they think that the medial parts of the frontal lobe, which would involve the self region and all of this, tend to be goal monitoring regions that are not effortful. Right. It's like, okay, I just put all this effort in to create this goal about who I am and where I want to go. But now I've transferred it to this region that just kind of keeps all of that online. Right. And like, I don't have to think every day when I wake up, like, I want to be an academic and I want to teach. Right. I, I go to work and I do the things that are leading me to that ultimate goal. Right. And what I think is is ultimately happening is that we're essentially keeping this model of ourself online. And it's essentially like when you think about what identity is, like what the self is, and this, this might be controversial. This is like a way that I see it. But I see it very much as a goal-directed process, like me defining who I am is defining the types of behaviors that I need to engage in to continue being that thing, Right. If I define myself as a husband and as a father, that means I am taking on the responsibility of engaging in the types of behaviors that a good husband and a good father do, right? It's a goal process. It's like, I need to continue engaging in these behaviors. And so if you have that online all the time, then it's tuning your attention to look for those things, right? if I define myself as a husband and as a father, my attention is gonna be hopefully looking for the types of things that, that tell me whether or not I'm being a good husband or whether I'm being a good father.
0: That is so interesting. I, I've, um, <clears throat> this is kind of off topic, but I've been reading this book called uh, The Gap and the Gain, which is really yeah. just about, um, I don't know, it's uh, it's kind of like about success and and happiness while you're pursuing something but they talk so much about this idea of focusing on the gain rather than the gap. And what they mean by that, um, this, this guy, uh, psychologist Benjamin Hardy and uh, his co-author Dan Sullivan, uh, what they mean is that the gap is how far you are from your ultimate goal, your, uh, your ideal, really. And, um, and the gain is how far you've come. And what they, they find, at least anecdotally, is that focusing on that gain, Gives people a much greater sense of motivation, a much greater sense of efficacy and and happiness, really, uh, than when they're so focused on the far off goal and and just constantly, you know that. And ultimately, those goals can really be a moving a moving target, uh, kind of always receding as you approach them. Um, but if you focus on that gain, on the progress that you've actually made, it seems to kind of boost people's um, happiness and, and mo- motivation for, for whatever they're doing. And I'm just c- kind of trying to relate that to what you're saying, because it sounds like the medial PFC might be more about yourself, about who you are and about what you've actually done in your progress. And then these lateral regions are kind of keeping that goal, that ideal online. And maybe the I don't know, you know, this is getting maybe a little woo. But the more we we shift our processing toward these medial regions, maybe uh, maybe there's some benefit to that.
1: And I think something that, that that's important here is that what you just described takes an effortful piece, right? So what I'm describing is that like, once you've done the effortful piece, then it's like, it's just online all the time, right? Uh, But if you don't put the effort in, then like what is online, right? And you think that like this this region is involved in like rumination, right? And like thinking about the past and thinking about the future and all of these things. And if you're constantly feeding that model negative information, you're constantly feeding it like oh god look at all these terrible things that i did in the past and i've never accomplished anything and like uh, i wasted all my time doing this and doing that and like what am i gonna where am i ever gonna be right and you start looking at the you've now created this model that looks for proof that you're unsuccessful uh. right because now the the goal is kind of negative in a sense it's like look for all of the reasons why i'm not successful um where what you're talking about is really about building up a model of success and i mean this even ties into a lot of the gratitude work that we have maybe talked about on past episodes too is that like gratitude is a way of bringing positive emotion from the past into the present right and it's it's saying like 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 i'm thankful for all of those things that happened before because they allowed me to be who i am now and to think about what i can accomplish in the future um but those, like I said, those are effortful processes. You need to put time into actually building the model. Uh, and this, this came up, I think, in our last episode of like thinking about this as a, as a ba- biased data set. Like when you think about AI and AI being like this, this huge thing right now, if you train AI on a bunch of negative crap, it's going to produce negative crap. Right. And if you train it on a bunch of positive crap, it's going to produce a bunch of positive crap. But right. But it's it's all about what we're training that model on. And it does take some effort to actually put positive stuff into that model to to tell it to to look for positive things.
0: Okay, yeah, that's definitely that clarifies it. That's really so interesting. (laughs) Um, Well, so okay, so while we're talking about um, identity and we're talking about who we are, um you know i don't want to skip too much but are we getting into kind of the, the creation and development of identity as we we age from from childhood to adulthood um or did you want is there something else you want to mention before we I get think to there, that
1: there's one more thing that i want to mention uh and that's ultimately what happens when this piece of the brain goes away mm. right uh because we're talking about like all of this stuff uh in in very kind of <laughs> like fanciful language, like a lot of this hasn't been studied really well. Uh, This is a lot of speculation about kind of how all of these pieces are fitting together and kind of tells this kind of cool story. But something that's really telling is what happens when that piece of the brain gets damaged or when that piece of the brain turns off because you're taking some type of substance, some type of drug, right? Uh, And the earliest example of this is Phineas Gage. Phineas Gage had a pole go right through his frontal lobe. And mm-hmm. it changed who he was, right? It changed his personality. It changed his, his sense of, of direction and goals and purpose. Um, but something that's really interesting that goes offline when you lose these regions is your ability to monitor your own behavior. And so you're no longer able to, like, filter your language you're not you're not able to know like in the moment that you're breaking social conventions that you're breaking rules and so that's another piece to this puzzle is that this region is also keeping online all of these relational qualities as well of like how it is that I'm supposed to act and I'm supposed to behave in accordance with all of these people around me.
0: Definitely, yeah. And I was just thinking of a different uh, different case study um, that was uh, first described by. I don't know his first name but S Esslinger and then Antonio Damasio uh mm-hmm. this guy patient EVR is how he's known in the literature and who got a uh, I think it was um a meningioma a, a tumor in his in that that region of the the frontal lobe the kind of anterior sort of uh, ventral frontal lobe and that it I believe it was removed on both sides um but anyway, he started showing this, this pattern of behavior that was completely out of sync with his, the rest of his life. He, he got like a, a div- I mean, it's really sad, actually. He got a divorce and he started um, gambling and uh, just like losing all his money and married a prostitute. And it's just like his life kind of went down the tubes because he wasn't able to to interact in a, like he, he was all, he seemed to have, okay. Like, first of all, there was more brain regions than just the single one that, that we've been yeah, yeah. mentioning here that were damaged, but he, he really had trouble um, following through on goals and, and just staying um it, within sort of like established social norms to the point that he, he just couldn't really function in normal society. Um, but anyway, I, I yeah, just wanted to mention that. Now, that. Me.
1: And I think that's interesting because it does highlight the role that these regions play in regulation, right? That our sense of identity, our sense of self is something that allows us to shape our behavior in the moment, right? It's able to tamp down impulses. It's able to, to tamp down emotions and feelings and things like that uh, that may not be appropriate for the given moment, uh, and I think what you're kind of getting at that, that might be really interesting is that like so much of that regulatory ability is built into our views of the future, right? Of who we want to become, of our goals and our processes. And it's like, okay, if I act this way right now, then I'm destroying these relationships and that's going to prevent me from being the kind of person that I want to be in the future, right? Right. And so, I think that so much of our our ability to regulate is built into these kind of self directed, long term, kind of goal oriented processes.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, you can kind of see it in your own life if you have these these large goals and they're they're really clear to you, and or you know, and also these social goals, like what we're talking about, who you want to be in the world. It's like your decisions, and we'll maybe talk a little bit about this later, but your decisions seem to just sort of flow naturally from those values because, uh, you know, that they're being held online maybe. And then these regions that are more important for the day-to-day decisions and regulating your behavior and emotion are sort of taking their cues from these these other um, more goal-relevant uh, regions.
1: And I think the, the last piece of this puzzle is what happens with psychedelics with uh certain types of drugs and things that uh it there was kind of this theory at the at the onset that it was what it's called hypofrontality that like the whole frontal lobe is just getting less active. But it's actually like when you look at look at it more distinctly, you actually see that the regions that are that are really turning down are these self regions. Uh and there's a phenomenological like what does it actually to, like to experience these things uh is you have a loss of a sense of self like mm. you're kind of in this moment you lose this sense of self it happens in like meditative practices and all of these kind of things and so it's it's really interesting when you start to to really put all of these pieces together that you see that like the self is at the core of a lot of our abilities as human beings to achieve what we're able to achieve and so i think yeah. that would be a good good spot to kind of get into identity
0: right okay yeah definitely um sorry just looking here okay all right so what is do we do we start out with an identity as babies as infants (laughs) or does it is it something that has to develop over time
1: and it's it's interesting because you have to think about it uh you have to differentiate like identity from temperament right from personality Mm. Because, like, my son definitely has a temperament, definitely has a personality, right? He is a wild child. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he, I don't think, has a very strong sense of the future, right? And you can kind of think back on your life. It, it makes sense. Like, the the older you get, the, the further and further I think you're able to see into the future, right? Uh, and what region of the brain is the most highly developed later in life? Uh, tends to be these frontal cortex
0: regions. That's so interesting. Yeah. i sorry. I, I'm going to get on another tangent here, but I was just <laughs> uh, talking about this yesterday that like when I was a teenager or like a young teenager, especially yeah. I was a, more of a, like a really unhealthy snack connoisseur. Like I would just, <laughs> I, you know, like, I like li- hot Cheetos with lime more than regular hot Cheetos. <laughs> and now it's like, I just totally avoid that stuff but I think it definitely had to do with that sense of self and the, and the future, especially like, Mm -hmm. what is this going to do to my body? That just wasn't even, it didn't even really matter back then, you know, and now it's, it's so front and center for me. And I think it it definitely has to do with this development that you're talking about. But anyway, I skipped way ahead. No, no, uh, no. To the teenage years.
1: (laughs) Right. No, I think that's, uh, that's really important because that's, that's where we do need to focus because um, it's really interesting. So I taught this development class and it's, Uh, when you look at the textbook, like the textbooks, like, like this thick, and if you're listening, it's two inches, (laughs) uh, but you look at the first 20 years of life in that textbook, take up like three fourths of the textbook. And then the next like 70 to 80 years of your life take up like 25%. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it shows that like so much happens in terms of, of development, uh, in that first 20 years of life, and especially in adolescence. And you have to realize that like almost every single, I mean, pretty much every mammal goes through an adolescent period. And it's it's this thing that you have to think about. Uh, and it's, it's really important, I think, to, to reflect on. We all go through this transition of dependency to independency, right? And that transition requires specialization. And our brains are hardwired to go through the process of specialization.
0: Uh, yeah, that that definitely makes sense. So we have to start thinking about our, like ourselves in the world mm-hmm. and and how we are actually going to make our lives in into what we want them to be or or something desirable um, rather than having that be dependent on a caregiver. Yep,
1: and and that's it's it's a scary place to be, right? Especially in the world now where like they, those options are are pretty far off. They require a lot of work. I mean, I remember my, my dad, like when he was a teenager, was like a PT tech. And now that requires like a two-year associate degree to be able to do, like we live in a very kind of specialized world where anything that you want to do requires these really kind of big decisions that you have to make about your money and about your time. and And then you're out on your own and you have to figure out how to like, Uh, who am I in terms of like not being a dependent on my caregivers? Uh, Like, what is it about me that makes me special? That makes me unique? Uh, There's like, when you look at the developmental literature, there's this whole period of kind of adolescence into emerging adulthood, where you're spending a lot of time, like thinking about those questions about what it is that makes me unique, what it makes me, what is it about me that that allows me to kind of fit in with, with other people, with the social structure, with everything that we're doing. Um, And it's, not fulfilling those questions that leads to a lot of kind of uh depression symptoms and anxiety symptoms and things like that.
0: Mm, yeah. And, you know, pile on top of that, I guess when you when you are starting to, you know, get to later adolescence and you're you're moving out of the house, your the your frontal cortex is still developing. It's still yeah. um undergoing this myelination process and it's not the connections aren't fully um, matured yet. So th- a lot of these processes we're talking about are still coming online as you're <laughs> making these really big decisions. and um, but yeah, so so anybody who's like a teenager or has an older teenager, like just keep that in mind. that's probably part of the uh, yeah. the turmoil that they're going through.
1: And there's this fascinating thing that happens to the brain during adolescence uh, with pretty much every species. There's this huge pruning event that happens. Uh, where we lose a lot of the neural connections in our brain. And it's, it's mainly been talked about as kind of, it's probably this, this way that we're specializing, right? We're, we're choosing to kind of get rid of all of these things that, that don't help us to be an independent agent in the world away from our caregivers. And we're really doubling down on the things that, that make us unique, that make us kind of special, that allow us to kind of be a, a person out in the world.
0: And that it and it makes sense too because in those early, really early years, uh, we're just forming connections like crazy, like, uh, uh, especially in the <laughs> infant brain, but also like through childhood, we're just like, yeah. uh, our brains are are forming all kinds of connections. And, and then there's this pruning event that starts to happen in adolescence where those a lot of those connections get cut back. And then like Taylor's saying, we, we start to like specialize our really our, our mental software toward. The society that we live in, in many ways, or the the social context, just our general context, uh, we have to kind of mature into that. And I don't know what do you think about the idea that as we we age, the reason that our our prefrontal cortex takes so long to mature is that we're, or one of the reasons is that we're um, in this complex society, and we have to learn, we have to be flexible enough as we develop to be able to to learn to cope with and adapt to that, that society that we live in, because otherwise, you know, if it was all hardwired, we wouldn't be yeah. able to have as, maybe as flexible of, of behavior and, and cognition around that stuff. No, Totally. Yeah.
1: Um, and it's, it, I think we mentioned this on a, on a previous, I think it was the, the plasticity episode that these regions are, are super plastic. And, the reason, and one of the reasons that they are damaged so easily in Alzheimer's and frontotemporal dementia and things like that is because they're plastic. When we hardwire things, we also protect them. Like we create these like hardwired things and we solidify them in place or whatever. Uh, and that, that gives us some, some protection from disease and things like that. But it, it really shows how important these types of abilities are that they're they, they stay plastic they stay flexible, right? That there has been kind of a lot of benefit from being able to uh, to really adapt how it is that we can fit into these incredibly complex changing societies that we're a part of um, and that we can pivot, right? Because like, I know that there's probably lots of people listening to this that have had to make lots of pivots, made a career change at like 50, right? Uh, like it's, it's something that, you're able to do that because you have all of this, this plasticity in the region of your brain that allows you to form
0: long-term goals and purpose. And is that, you know, and within that, that long-term goals and purpose, like you're talking about earlier, is your, maybe your identity, like who, who you want to be. And so that can also kind of shift and change over time. Interesting. And I, and I think you're
1: you're you're really kind of getting into the thing that I love most about this kind of work, because identity is incredibly powerful. And I'm not just talking about racial identity or cultural identity or anything like that. I'm talking about just identity in general. Uh, this is there's a something that I do with my students, right? Just put the the question, "Who am I?" up on the board, right? And I give them five minutes and I just say, write down as many descriptors to that question as you can. Uh, And at the end of it, it's it's a really interesting reflection because you see that there's a certain percentage of those words that are kind of independent oriented. They're about me. They're about me going through the world and accomplishing things, right? But there's a huge portion of them that are relational, right? I mentioned a couple of them already. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a scientist, right? These are how I fit in to the social groups that I'm a part of, Right. And so identity becomes this thing that drives our behavior, that becomes this motivator of behavior. And if you really think about these goal-oriented things that I was talking about of like, if I define my identity, if I spend the time, the effortful time, like who am I? Like what is important to me? What are these values that I have? Then they get transferred to these medial regions, which are probably kind of keeping that stuff online. So instead of saying, I'm gonna go on a diet, And I'm going to lose 20 pounds, right? You've just defined to your brain that you have a goal to eat healthy food right now until you lose 20 pounds. Mm
0: -hmm. And then it's gone,
1: (laughs) right? But if instead you put the work in and you actually start defining your identity in a different way. And this is, like I said, these these processes are flexible, right? Right. We think that they're rigid, but they're really not. We think they're rigid because we're in social interactions with people that have expectations of us and all of these things that make us think that that we're kind of stuck with who we are, but that's not how it is in the brain. Like these, these processes can change. And so if you start to define yourself as a healthy person, I am a healthy person, you start tuning your brain to look for healthy choices, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just said, with your you're not looking for hot Cheetos with lime anymore, <laughs> right? Your brain does not, like you walk into the store, your brain's not like hot Cheetos.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's like chickpeas. Yeah. <laughs> that is, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's so interesting because it, it's this eff, like effortless f- filtering of your yeah. your behavior and your decisions because you've inst- instantiated that goal as part of, of who you are uh that's so interesting um oh man that's yeah yeah right and it's
1: yeah. it's it's hard it takes because we were are working with a model that we've spent years and years and years with right that's been operating under the hood and it takes a lot of life circumstances like uh i remember writing a a song uh, on my guitar for my dad one time like the whole premise was tell me what you told me back then Right. Uh, and it was this thing that like when we're young, we're, we're told all of these things that like we should do, like you need to not eat your hot Cheetos with lime or whatever. <laughs> uh, but it's not until we actually get knocked down by life that we, we start to incorporate these lessons into our self-concept. Right. And then as we get older, you know, tell me what you told me back then. It starts to make sense. It starts to kind of create this narrative of, you know what, I, I, need, I need to be healthy because now I feel my body breaking down, right? I feel my joints hurt, right? I need to eat better. I need to exercise. I need to do these things because I'm starting to, to realize why they need to be incorporated into my identity.
0: That is so interesting. And I think when you couple that with the, uh, the idea I was kind of talking about earlier, that, that gap and gain framework, but when you focus on that progress that you're making towards that goal, and then you can actually start gathering evidence that you are that identity that you want yourself to be. I think that that combination can be super powerful for maintaining that behavior over time. But like when we, we had our episode on self-regulation and self-control, um, I can't remember who it was, but, but somebody that we referenced was talking about how it seems that in the, the literature on self-control, this is maybe like one of the most powerful strategies for, for regulating our behavior. Uh, That When you instantiate that as like a goal that I'm part of my identity is being a healthy person rather than not eating, uh, you know, hot Cheetos with lime today.
1: No, totally. And it's, it's something that, uh, becomes so like inherent right uh something that we've talked about so much on this show is how we really need to start reconceptualizing how it is that we think right we we think we have insight into our thought process into how we make decisions and and how our cognition works uh but so much of everything that we do is under the hood Right. Like Andrew if I Andrew and I have joked about writing a book called Under the Hood. Uh, because there's there's just there's so much like our beliefs, our values, our identity processes are not things that come to the forefront when we're actually engaging in these things, when we're actually making these decisions. They are the filter that all of this stuff is passing through. And so it's like, what do you want your filter to look like?
0: It's plastic. Ben, that seems like that should be the like one of the take home messages for this episode, that that filter, that identity is plastic and you can change that over time. And that seems to be a theme that's coming up in our, our last few episodes, that that mm-hmm. you know, what you take yourself to be, what you, you think yourself capable of, those are plastic, those are changeable. And um, employing some of these these evidence based tools and strategies can help you accelerate that process of changing your identity and then achieving the goals um, by enacting the behaviors that allow you to achieve those goals.
1: This is why I really like going back to um, it's like old philosophical work. So that's kind of like uh, I I like listening to philosophy on the side. But uh, there's a branch of philosophy that that really sticks out for me, and that's existentialism. And existentialism is all about meaning making. And you have to think, I mean, this was, what, 150, 200 years ago that like these questions started to really kind of come to the forefront of philosophy of like, do we define our own meaning, right? Because so much of human history has been about others defining our meaning, right? About God defining our meaning, about our social group defining our meaning. And it it took a lot of, of really kind of influential thinkers to be like, No, we create that. We create our purpose. We create our drives and our motivations. And like the the thing about existentialism is that it recognizes that we live in an incredibly absurd world, right? If you really think about what we're doing right now, we are bags of water and chemicals (laughs) that are sitting on chopped down pieces of trees with like metal components and a computer that are put together in this camera. It's absurd, (laughs) right? But somehow, through all of that, we're able to maintain a sense of purpose, right? And that sense of purpose is something that we put the effort into. And the the really important thing, that I think the distinction that I really wanted to make with like bringing identity and adolescence into this is that, yes, I'm talking about this on a historical scale, right? That historically, we haven't had a very strong sense of independency until recently in, in human history. But we also experience this through our lifetime, We go from being very dependent on caregivers, on those around us, to being more independent. Some people never make that transition, right? Some people are very stuck in dependency, dependency on expectations and the groups that they're a part of and the relationships that they're a part of. And you have to realize that the self part of being alive takes effort. It takes Mm -hmm. recognizing what are those things that other people are putting on me? What are those things that are dependent and what are the things that i'm actually defining for myself
0: oh that i love that um yeah yeah it's uh it, it has to do with with forming what our values are what we really care about and what we we really want in life and and for life and um well wow, yeah no it's, it's, it's fascinating <laughs> stuff i'm, I'm as much as a student Oh yeah, go for it! Yeah, we have. I was a nice... just going to say we have we have
1: Paulo that I, I guess is is liking this too. So thanks from the Brazilian Amazon. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the rest of his uh, his chat <laughs> message. It's in um, Portuguese, and uh, yeah, I would completely butcher it. But I assume it's uh, it's all good stuff. So thank you, Paulo.
1: <laughs> we'll plug it into Google Translate later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome so i think we're kind of running up to the end do you want to say a few words andrew
0: yeah sure um just uh thank you everyone for listening um for checking this out and make sure to subscribe to both of our channels i'm sense of mind and taylor is the cellular republic uh we're going to be trying to do these episodes a little bit more often maybe a more closer to a weekly basis but we'll we'll see um Next week, we're going to have an AMA episode and Ask Me Anything episode. So if you've seen my posts or Taylor's posts about uh, throwing your questions into uh, the comments section on those posts, um, go ahead and do that. And we might not get to all of them, but we'll save (laughs) questions and we'll come back to them probably in in future episodes. So, um, yeah, that's uh, be on the lookout for that.
1: Yeah. And I think some of them might require a whole episode uh, to really dive into and to give us time to to research. Like we put a lot of time into every one of these episodes that we do. Uh, I mean, we dive into a lot of videos and papers and everything as we're getting ready for these. So we're going to try our best to, to kind of answer what we can and then we'll save the other ones for later. But um, I kind of want to just echo what Andrew just said. Like, thank you for listening. This is really cool that we have the audience that we do, that people continue to tune in and want to hear about the brain and how it relates to their psychology and their behavior. Um, we want to continue doing this, but uh, we also need to to make money. So for those of you that are willing, like we want this to be free to consumers, but for those that are willing, it would be a huge help if you kind of join the Patreon The link up there that Andrew's pointing at uh, you can, you can do really small uh, kind of uh, low tier, like a dollar an episode kind of things uh every little bit really uh helps a lot for us so uh so thank you again for for tuning in and we will see you next week for ask me anything or ask us anything aua
0: yeah <laughs> all right well thanks everybody i know we got one last comment in here from chaz thompson love listening to you guys Uh, do something about functional autism sometime. We'd love to hear your specs. So we'll keep that on the lookout uh, or we'll keep that in the the future for the books uh, for the next episode, whatever (laughs) I'm trying to say here. Um, But yeah, thank you guys so much. We'll catch you next time.